Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you again for being here. As we continue the study of the Word of God this morning, we're beginning to look at chapter 13 of Matthew, and we'll be in it this week and at least next week. I don't know whether three weeks, but at least this week and next week. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the first 24 verses. So let's open our hearts to pray. Father, thank you so much. Father, what a wonderful, awesome, incredible, kind, gracious, patient, forbearing, gentle, faithful, etc., etc., God you are to us. Father, we pray that in the daily issues of our lives, Father, you would be by your Spirit constantly reminding us of who you are and how you relate to us, what you've done, what you were doing, and what you will do. Father, that when we're overwhelmed by all the floods of life, Father, would you cause us to remember you, the gospel, the work of the Lord Jesus, our future forever with you. Father, so that the winds and the waves of this world will be rebuked by the Holy Spirit in our hearts, allowing us to continue to walk with confidence and faith. Father, thank you for this word. This morning we ask for your teaching by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 13 is the third of the five sermons that Jesus preaches in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is constructed in such a way that he presents five major blocks of teaching of Jesus. This would be the third one. And in this block of teaching, what Jesus, what Matthew has Jesus doing, remember, this is a collection of sayings and sermons and teachings of Jesus. They may or may not have occurred at the same time in one setting. The probability is they were peppered over a period of months or maybe even years. But what Matthew has done under the leading of the Holy Spirit has taken the teaching of Jesus and brought these teachings together to bear upon the particular subject that Matthew is being led to uh, uh, share and accentuate in relation to proving that Jesus is, in fact, God's Messiah. And so in the beginning of these, this chapter 5, at least in the first two parables, one of which we'll do this morning, next week we'll do the other one, we will see the issue of opposition, which we've already seen from the Pharisees. Remember, you're breaking the law. You're not of God. You're doing everything by the devil. You remember some of those things. You accuse John of being um, uh, aesthetic. You accuse me of being drunk, et cetera, et cetera. So the opposition, the opposition. And let's remember as we look at this, the opposition to Jesus first appears in the history of humanity where? Where does the opposition to Jesus' word and work first appear? Genesis 3. The opposition to Jesus' person, his work, 
and his word. The opposition to Jesus' person, work, and word begins in Genesis. And so as we are looking at this, what we are looking at is just a continuation, but a crescendoing of the opposition from the very beginning as Satan seeks to undermine and devalue and debunk, etc., this man, his work, and his word. So let's look at them. In this particular sermon, Jesus is going to use a couple for that. Jesus is going to use a couple of genres. He's going to use parables, which are stories that illustrate particular points. And parables are also make, in the parable is also making use of several types of speech. So there may be similes, there may be metaphors, there may be analogies, etc. So that's what a parable is. So chapter 13 will be filled with parables and figures of speech to, for Jesus as Jesus gets across his thoughts and his ideas concerning the opposition. So let's look at chapter 1, I'm sorry, verse 1 to 23, the parable of the sower. And again, why the opposition? In this sermon, we see why the opposition? Why are people against us? What's going on? Why do people misunderstand us? Why don't they like us? And again, we're talking about those activities that have to do with the kingdom of God. If you're mean, and a, mean as a snake, don't worry about why people don't like you. You know, that's a reason. So let's look at the parable, the first two verses. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. So Jesus begins to teach. I'm sorry, as Jesus left the uh, crowds, I'm going to get my mind together. The Holy Spirit will help me this morning and do this right. Jesus sees the crowds, and as they press in on him, and you see this quite a bit in Mark's gospel, he can't stand on the beach because of the pressing of the crowd. So he gets in the boat, rolls out a little bit from the crowd, and then stands in the boat or sits in the boat, however, and begins to speak to the people. So this is the picture. Jesus is in a rowboat or whatever, out from the, uh, um, the beach a little bit, out from the um, land a little bit, and speaking to the crowds. And he told them, verse 3 to 9, and he told them many things in parables, saying, a soul went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell upon along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun arose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So, why the opposition? What is going on? What Jesus is going to do is to use the parable as an illustration and an explanation of why the opposition. So, using the farmer as his illustration, obviously, Jesus is going to illustrate two divergent responses to those who hear the same message. The message of the gospel, the message of the kingdom is the same message. It goes out from the voice of the Son of God. And when the message of the kingdom or the message of the gospel or the message of the word of God goes out, is proclaimed, everybody hears the same message. 
but not everyone responds the same. And there are only two types of responses, ultimately. Either the response of, yes, I receive this, or no, I reject this. There is no middle ground, ultimately, to how to respond to this message. Now, we're not saying that someone under the conviction of the Holy Spirit hearing this begins to be led by the Spirit through a, if you would, a process to be born again, to be brought to a place of recognition and reception. We understand that. So the person moves from initial rejection to ultimate reception. But ultimately, there are only two ways of receiving the Word of God. Either it's going to be received or it's going to be rejected. Now, we must understand. I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. Verses 3 to 7 deal with those who hear the Word and reject the Word, the first three soils. Verses 8 and 9 deal with those who hear the Word and receive the Word. So, the seed is the same seed in both. The sower is the same sower. So, the only variable in this particular parable, the only variable, the only thing that changes, if you would, is the soil. The soil is different as proven by the results it produces. What comes out of the soil, the end product produce, um, proves the condition of the soil. And so, some soils we will see look like they are promising. They are good. Something's going to happen. I see activity. I, I'm hopeful. Whatever. But then over a period of time, and we'll see what happens, that soil does not produce what was sown in it. And then some soil produces a great harvest. And I, I think that all of us have experienced this, haven't we? How many of us have seen that when we've shared the gospel with someone, I've seen it in my office. And this is, I have to tell you this, when I have a person in the office, when a person comes into my office and I know the Holy Spirit is dealing, and this is a mystery to me, I'm going to say it right off, something is happening in the heart, a response, and I'm afraid at that point. Why? Because I am afraid, or at least concerned, that the soil into which that word went is good soil rather than one of the first three. And it looks like it's good, a good response, but then something happens and the response dies. I've seen that over the years. Maybe some of you have seen that over the years. And so when you share the gospel with someone, pray that the soil of their hearts is good soil. Don't just say, oh, Lord, I, I hope they respond. I hope they respond. Everybody responds. Pray rather than make them respond that the soil is good so that the seed that is planted, Holy Spirit, will cause the response to be fruitful. So I always pray for the soil of their hearts rather than the mechanics or is seeing something or not seeing something or particular if, if they're teary or joyful, whatever. That's nice, but I want the soil to be good because I've seen responses of all types over the years. And the proof of the genuineness of the soil is continuance all the way to whatever period we are in the gospel. You see, the seed of the first three soils produce no lasting fruit. 
Now, look at that word I just said there. It produces no lasting fruit. It may look like it immediately it produced something, but it doesn't produce fruit. Remember, that remains. Remember, that remains. While the soil of the fourth, the good soil, produces a great harvest. And so we've, we've seen this kind of uh, uh, revelation from Jesus before. You remember in Matthew chapter 7, he talked about what? Two gates, two ways. What? Narrow and wide. There's no middle path. He talked about two foundations. Good foundation, solid, the rock. Bad foundation, the what? Shifting sand. And so this is, again, a normal a normal presentation of Jesus as he takes all the responses of all mankind and he says they're going to fall into one of two categories. Either they're going to be entering through the narrow gate, the good soil, and built on the rock, good soil, or they're going to be go through the wide gate and build their house on the sand, the bad soil of the first three, and the house won't stand. So Jesus is explaining why some hear and receive while others hear and reject. Why do some hear and receive? And why do others hear and reject? Have you ever thought of that? And I think it's pretty clear all of us have. So I'm going to skip the middle part right now and come back to it. So let's look at Jesus' explanation in verses 18 to 23. And you know what would be good for you? I didn't do it in your notes. What would be good is to take the description of the first soil in the first uh, uh, nine verses there. The first soil verses, um, what was it, two through, um, I've forgotten, three, two and three. List it and then put the explanation. The second soil, list it and put the explanation. I think that might help to make it clearer for you if you did them side by side. So Jesus says this in verses 18 to 23. Hear then the parable of the sower. Let me explain this to you. Remember the disciples, we'll see in a moment. We don't understand this. Why are you talking in, in parables? We need some help. What in the world are you telling us? So he says, hear the parable of the sower. Again, the word hear, hear, is not just hear audibly. Ah, what you say? It's hear with understanding. Hear with understanding. Jesus obviously knows there's nothing wrong with their ears. What he's wanting them to do is hear with the spiritual understanding of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground... You see how he's relating to the first several verses there. This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So why do some reject and some receive? Verse 9, 19. 
what they hear when it falls into this particular soil is snatched away by the devil because of their lack of understanding. Do we see that in verse 19? What they hear because of a lack of understanding is snatched away. Now, let's look at that very carefully. Some folks say this is a picture of a believer who is saved and then loses his salvation. You will see that will be a teaching that you will hear from this. Um, I don't agree with that. What we see here, if we look carefully at the descriptions, is a different picture. The seed that is sown falls into the hearing of the, the man or the woman. And the devil is able to snatch it away. Why? Because of the lack of understanding. So first of all, who gives us the ability to understand the Word of God? Is it generically in the heart of man? Is our understanding of the Word of God indigenous to us? Is it in us by our birth? No. Remember what Paul talked about in Romans 3. No one understands. Who? No one. Who? No one. You remember those verses? Verses 9 to 18. You remember Paul is describing the condition of folks outside of Christ? No one. And so it's not that they understood and received and then nah, 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 did some stuff, whatever, and they shouldn't have done that. And so that's the first thing, without understanding. This is a condition of the person who does not understand. No one understands. Understanding comes only as only from the work of the Holy Spirit as his gift of ministry to open our hearts, which we'll see in a moment. That's the first thing. Second thing, what happens when it falls into a heart that doesn't understand it? It is what? Snatched away. Do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10? Talking about his own people. He says this. Listen to the word. Snatched away is in Matthew right here. Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. Now, what does that mean, no one? Does that include the devil himself? Can the devil, can Satan himself snatch any believer out of the hands of God Almighty? But what does it say here? This person was snatched away. That doesn't mean just he kind of didn't understand this and that, and he kind of wasn't. He was snatched away. Jesus says, my people cannot, may I repeat that? My people what? Cannot be snatched away. No understanding, snatched away. I have to assume and believe this is a picture of an unbeliever whose response is essentially, finally, immediately or after a period of time, rejects the gospel. Now, when we say rejects the gospel, we're not saying become violent against the gospel. No, no, well, even God or not. It just, it, it means this, that my life is not going to be, continue to be lived on the basis of trusting Christ. I will continue to live on the basis of being self-centered, self-focused, self-worshipped, self-obeyed, rather than Christ in each of those words for self. So rejection here, some of our minds, we may be thinking rejection is a violent attack against. Well, it might be. 
But typically, it just isn't. It's just, no, I don't believe that, you know, whatever. And it's just kind of an ignoring or making fun of, belittling, or whatever it is. That's rejection. Look at verses 20 to 21. The word they heard, what? What is the word there in verse 20? Has no root. Look at that word, no root. Does it say a little bit of root? What does it say? No root. Now, what did Jesus mean? What, what Jesus, wasn't there a little bit of root? I think what Jesus really meant was there a little bit of root, Butch, but not enough. Is that what he said? You see, Jesus is very precise. He says there was what? No root. No root. Because it fell on a rock. How many of you have ever tried to plant flowers on concrete? And what happened? Guess what? It looked good for a moment or two, but when the sun came out, what? Why? Because it had no root. The seed fell on concrete. It ain't going to grow. It's not going to grow. He says, they immediately, sorry, where am I? Verse, what was sown along the path? For what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself before a while endures. No root. Tribulation. Difficulty. No root. Why? Because it falls on rocky ground. And the hearer, then what? Falls away. The hearer falls away. What is the quintessential proof that we are believers. Not the initial response to the gospel, but the ongoing production of gospel-generated fruit. That's how we know we're in Christ, isn't it? That's how we know. So when someone is, looks like they've been saved, I am, I am excited about that, but I'm always concerned is this good soil or not? Verse 22. Oh, by the way, in Christ, we are rooted in Christ. We are rooted in Christ. The Bible says we are rooted. Our roots are in Christ. There's no way to be in Christ and not be rooted. There's no way to be in Christ and have no root. We are rooted in Christ. Verse 22, what they heard fell among the thorns. Remember the thorns and the thistles, and they had choked out so that it was unfruitful. I got the fall away um, thing. The root is in Colossians 2, 6, and 7 being rooted. And so when they heard it's thorns and choked out, why? Because no, it doesn't have any fruit. It's unfruitful. What's wrong with that? A believer cannot be unfruitful. It's impossible for us to be in Christ and be un, what does un mean? Not fruitful. Now, Jesus didn't say bearing a whole lot of fruit or a little bit of fruit. Every believer will bear some sort of God-developed, given, produce fruit to some extent. Every believer will. Amen? Every believer. Some will produce more than others. Some will have seasons of not, you know, very little production, whatever. There may be seasons where it looks like, uh-oh, nothing's happening in my life. But in the long run and in the long haul of life, 
every believer will be fruitful to some extent. And so, in my mind, when the Bible says no fruit, this is contrary to what Jesus says in chapter 15 of Matthew, uh, John. In this is my Father glorified, that you do what? Bear no fruit. That you do what? Bear much fruit. And so prove, and that your fruit will what? Remain. It's not that you will have fruit immediately and then it falls off and there's no more fruit. But the fruit that is being produced, if it's God-generated fruit, will be fruit that lasts all the way through. Now, we're not talking about the amount of fruit here. We're talking about the activity or the existence of fruit. Then verse 23, the seed falls on good soil, producing fruit that remain to produce a great, a miraculous harvest. Remember the fruit of the Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit. Now, someone will say, well, you know, why 30, 60, and 100-fold? Typically, and you know, I wouldn't know this until I read about it. Typically, if a farmer produce tenfold in those days, it was like, we can't believe it. This guy has produced more, you know, fruit than anybody else. Tenfold was absolutely, you know, right on the borderline of it can't be better than this. But why is Jesus saying 30 and 60 and a hundredfold? Because you see, the fruit of the Spirit is always miraculous. And so I believe he's saying 30, 60, and 100 fold, not only to say that there are going to be various levels of fruit production in us, but even the least level, the least level of 30 is going to be so mind boggling compared to what the natural is that it has to be understood and identified as from God. Only God can produce that kind of fruit. And that's what I think Jesus is saying here. So why do some hear the Word of God and reject it? Why? In Jeremiah 17, 9, we have an answer. Every person's heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. We are all born into this world with hearts that are sick, deceitful, without understanding, without any knowledge of God personally in, in, in relation to who He is and what He's done. The seed of the Word cannot take root in such soil. It can't do it. This means that God must change or transform the condition of the soil if that soil is to bear fruit in every good work increasing in the knowledge of God. As you know, I quoted from Colossians 1.10. If the soil is going to produce the fruit to please God, God himself, the gardener, must come in and begin to deal with the rocky, hard ground of the heart and condition and, and, and transform it and change it in such a way so when the seed of His Word enters into that soil that He has prepared beforehand, then that seed will, in fact, produce good fruit. Why? Because God Himself has come in and prepared the, for, the, uh, the uh, field. So what do farmers do? 
they go in there and they prepare the field. They rut the ground. You've seen it. They do all that. And then the sower comes in and he begins to cast the seed into the ground. And only the seed that falls into the pre-prepared soil produces a fruit. Now, maybe, you know, the good soil produces the, uh, the uh, product of 30, 60, or 100. The seed that goes into all the other areas produces no fruit. It has no root. It doesn't understand. It's snatched away. We see this in Ezekiel 36, 26 about God transforming the heart. Remember this. He describes the heart as a heart of stone. This is the under, lack of understanding, no understanding heart, no roots heart, hard soil heart. In fact, it falls under rock. Remember, that was one of the analogies. And the heart of stone, and explains how such a heart of stone, which all of us have been born with a heart of stone, how that heart of stone can be changed before it can receive the Word of God in order to produce fruit. What has to happen? Well, let's read. We read this and quoted this many times in here and in, in, in the um, service on Sunday mornings, Ezekiel 36. Listen to what verse 26 says. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. In other words, I will prepare the soil, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will give you new soil. That reminds me of another verse, Ephesians 2.8. What does it say? For by grace we have been saved through faith. And faith is that work of God, if you would, to plow the soil of our hearts. He's plowing the soil of our hearts, creating a heart that can receive the Word of God by faith. And faith is the work of God. Remember, it's not of your own, but is what? The gift of God. And so why are people saved? God sends the Holy Spirit into the world. And he, the Holy Spirit, begins to sow into the soil of the hearts of those whom God will save, whom he has known before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4. His own people, those whom he has called before the foundation of the world to be his people. And the Holy Spirit begins to plow the hearts, plow the hearts, preparing the way, preparing the way. So that when the, we hear the word, when we hear the word, faith cometh by hearing. When we hear the word, we can then receive the word because God has done the preparation work for us to be able to receive the Word. Otherwise, the Word is falling on that ground such as it would be concrete. And that Word will never be, although heard, it will never be able to be produced as fruit. In order to become the good soil of a heart that receives the unprotected productive soil, that concrete, that stony heart, must be recreated to produce a great or miracle harvest. This is the sovereign work of God in saving his people. So what does Jesus say in John 15, 16, something like that? Uh, this is similar. You have not chosen me. You're not in the kingdom because you sought for me. You're not in the kingdom because you did something. You're not in the kingdom because you prayed. You're not in the kingdom because, you know, you had a need. You're not in the kingdom for any of these reasons. 
primarily. You're not in the kingdom. This is not the primary reason why you're in the kingdom. Everybody here, let's listen to this. We're not saved because of something that we have done or something of or about us. Primarily, that is not what happened. Here's what it, I have chosen you. And I have ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. Let's look at the verses 10 to 17. Jesus gives his scriptural basis for this. Then the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given, 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 you see, to know, to know, to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For you, the one, for to the one who has, more will be taken away, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even that which he has been will be taken away. Why parables? Because you see, what God is doing here, what Jesus is doing here, is accentuating the unbelief and proving the belief and explaining what is happening in the hearts of these folks. Who are the ones who hear and respond? Who are the ones? Listen to this from Romans 8. Who responds to the gospel? For we know that God works all things for the good. For those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. In other words, not everybody loves God. For we know that God works all things for those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, again, knew ahead of time relationally, even in activities, but relationally, those who were his by relationship before the foundation of the world, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Why? In order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those whom he predestined, remember before the foundation of the world, he also called. Remember? Called. Jesus says, I've not, you've not called on me, I've called, I've called you. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So why does Jesus use parables? Well, again, 13 to 15, explaining that from Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. Why? To show that the unregenerate hearts, the stony hearts, cannot and will not receive God, God's Word unless regenerated by the Holy Spirit. He is showing here that the problem is the hard-heartedness of unbelievers. We were all born hard-hearted. Hearted. None of us would have received the word. None of us. We are here today having received the word and being nourished by the word only because of the preemptive, recreative work of God in us as purchased and made possible at the cross in the death and resurrection of the, of the Son of God and applied to us by the Holy Spirit. That's why we're here today. Finally, the last verses, 16 and 17, Jesus gives a benediction. But blessed are your eyes, for they see. In other words, they see with sight that grasps spiritual realities. And your ears, for they hear, hear with spiritual understanding. Truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus says, right in your midst. You are seeing and hearing and witnessing and experiencing 
what all of those righteous men and women since Adam and Eve were yearning to see, wanted to see, would have given anything to see and to experience and to have. Everything being in types and shadows before, but now you had the reality. So it's like being in a home, and you walk in the home, and you can smell the wonderful aroma of the food. And so as you're sitting around outside of the dining room, someone comes and gives you a couple little bite sizes, you know, just causing you to want to be where. Let's get to the dinner. Finally, the dinner is here. This is what Jesus is saying. You're blessed because you are part of the banquet that I have created for you and that I give to you. Next week, we'll talk about the wheat and the tares, the yeast, and the rest of the chapter. Thank you.